Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the FT Advisor podcast. This edition examines the outlook for emerging markets after the pandemic. This podcast is brought to you in association with Schroeder's. The global economy has been plunged into recession as a result of the COVID-19 emergency. And historically, emerging market equities suffer and turmoil rips the world. But is it different this time? I'm David Thorpe, Special Projects Editor at FT Advisor. And joining me today to discuss this topic are Nicholas Field, Global Emerging Market Equity Strategist at Schroders, and Mike Coop, Investment Manager at Morningstar. Good afternoon to you both, and thank you for joining me. Pleased to be here. Good afternoon. Nicholas, uh, if we start with you, is it even valid anymore to group all of those markets together under one label as emerging markets? I mean, there have always been different stories out there. Uh, South Korea, very different from other emerging markets, but now increasingly also China's trajectory looks different to many others. How do you feel about that, about that label? And how does that influence uh, how you do things at Schroders? I think it does make uh, sense to uh, to bundle these countries together. Um, you can never get it quite right in terms of which should be in and which should be out. And it's important to know that the the differentiation between emerging and developed isn't really to do with economics um, or even the uh, the sort of equities you can buy. It's much more to do with uh, market structures and how easy it is to to trade and set up accounts. It's also to do with relative uh, volatilities um, vis-a-vis the U.S. So the way that pretty much all asset markets work around the world over at least longer periods of time is that they all trade sort of in opposition to the dollar to some degree um, with varying degrees of risk on that. So you'll see that even within European equities, for example, you know, when the dollar's strong, uh, and then yeah, U.S. Uh, and U.S. equities doing well, European equities are usually uh, not doing as well, um, and vice versa. Um, and the same, of course, is true with uh, what we call emerging markets. Uh, the levels of risk involved are, are higher. So what's really connecting them in return terms is not so much the, uh, the development status of the country, how advanced it is or not. It's how volatile it is when um, uh, you know, the dollar's in a strong patch or the dollar's in a weak patch, and you know, what sort of things does it do? And that's really why these markets tend to, to be classified together and why investors tend to still quite like the idea that they, they form some sort of group because in very broad terms, they have um, similar sort of volatility characteristics or at least more similar than, than one of these markets might do with, say, German equities or, or certainly with the US. Thank you. Mike at Morningstar, how do you how do you think about this this question of emerging markets and allocations therein? Yeah, um, once upon a time it was defined by GDP per capita, um, and if you go back far enough, that was the distinguishing label. And things have obviously moved on since then. I think the way we think about it is, it did used to be that these many of these economies were more prone to boom-bust cycles, they um, tended to be more reliant on foreign investor savings, their capital markets were less well-developed in terms of uh, investor protection, in terms of uh, securities market regulation, and 
So they were generally a wilder ride and they were more pro-cyclical. What's interesting is that over time that has changed pretty dramatically with the rise of China and with Taiwan and Korea becoming bigger parts and then opening up the Soviet Union. So actually, um, the sector mix has changed quite substantially from a you know focus on um, materials and banking previously to a broader sector mix. So I think to that extent, it has actually changed the way they behave. Um, it's certainly true that some of these elements still remain the case um, that make these countries more volatile. I, I think we tend to think about it less in terms of how they perform relative to the dollar and more what is driving the profitability within each country, how attractively priced is that for the risks? And we tend to break it up because of the, the degree of heterogeneity within emerging markets. Um, and if we look within developed markets, we've already seen how incredibly volatile some of those markets can be, uh, whether it's a Germany or whether you have traditional cyclical markets like Australia. So we tend to now break it up and think about it more like that rather than thinking of it as necessarily always that different from developed. Thank you. And Mike, just to, I suppose, carry that theme on a little bit, um, I'm sure during the course of this afternoon's conversation, we'll speak about the fundamentals of emerging markets now, but to what extent really does investor sentiment, investor view of the world drive the short and medium performance of emerging market assets? Is sentiment significant as a driver in emerging markets than it is in, in many developed markets? Well, I think sentiment impacts all markets all the time. Um, and we've seen that if you look over time, you know, there's, his, there's been episodes of, of investor euphoria or depression, whether it was the financials before the financial crisis in, in the US and around the world, or whether it was the TMT sector or whether it was Japan. So it's not a EM specific phenomenon that sentiment has an impact. I think if you step back and look at the longer term decomposition of returns over 10, 20 years, and you look at where that comes from, you know, it's it's the yield, it's the earnings per share, real growth, and it's the uh, it's the valuation uh, and how that re-rates. Um, and sentiment can certainly affect the valuation rating, but over time, you know, uh, markets tend to track the real growth and earnings uh, and the yield. So I think for us, the sentiment is important to take into account as a shorter term phenomenon, but over the long term for us, it does wash out. Um, I think the other important thing is the studies that analyze what drives um, the variability of markets shows that over the last 20 to 30 years, sectors have become more important relative to country factors, both across EM and DM. But what is interesting is that in, in EM, country is still a bigger driver than than uh, than sector. So that means there are important country-specific factors that have a, probably a bigger role to play in emerging markets. And often those are the ones that can also impact um, sentiment. Um, and so politics is, you know, has has been a more important factor um, maybe than we've been used to seeing in developed markets, although even that's changing. Thank you. Nicholas, as an EM investor down there at the coalface every day, um, how does what you do in your process, I suppose, interact with 
with those gales of market sentiment coming in, how, how can you handle them or how can you view them? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to be careful of, of, about when you think about sentiment and, and how to define it because um, sometimes you can, as a, as a longer-term investor, you can define sentiment as a, anything that's happening that isn't in line with your portfolio and is causing a negative performance. So you just have to be a, bit, a little bit careful about what is sentiment. Um, but I broadly agree with what's just been said. It's, it's, uh, you know, if you define it as um, valuation, um, uh, moves, then it does wash out over the long term. Uh, you know, valuations, of course, do do uh, uh, move over a reasonably long term, but they, they generally mean revert if you look long enough. Um, and that the the thing which is left, you know, the the dividends and the, and the earnings, and that provides your returns. And that's what any investment process is going to be to be focused on. Now that said, these sentiment swings and, and some of the ones which I mentioned, like uh, you know the Nasdaq bubble and so on, you know, can last quite a long time and uh, uh, can hugely negatively affect your performance if you um, are persistently on the wrong side. Now those are relatively extreme events; they may not happen all the time, but you know it's quite often that during any given economic cycle there'll be some sector or, or possibly country that's in a uh, some sort of um, bubble-like environment. Even in recent times, we saw that was pretty short-lived. We saw, for instance, a bubble in Chinese A shares in 2015, um, which was which was fairly extreme. Um, so uh, you have to, to, to be a little careful that you're not completely on the wrong side of these things. Um, and you also have to understand you know, why they're occurring um, and hence how long-term they're going to be. So understanding sentiment and valuations and understanding how it's you know, how it could have moved. Um, it's certainly part of the investment process. That's more of a risk factor. Um, I think the core of any investment process is always going to be on that, that earnings production from the companies you're investing in. Um, and, uh, you know, sentence is going to come in as a, as a potential risk factor, but you, uh, you certainly can't ignore it. Um, and I would also agree with the comment that it's not uh, an emerging market-specific phenomenon. Um, Sometimes uh, you know they can be more volatile. Perhaps we can go further, but uh, you know some of the biggest uh, uh, sentiment drives and bubbles we've seen have certainly been in developed markets. So it's something I think every investment manager needs to, to take on board. Thank you. Um, and Nicholas, if we follow that up, I suppose the um, a question many advisors are probably asking themselves is when they when they've made up their mind about emerging markets. I suppose is um, what's the best way to get that. Um, get that exposure. One could do it by buying a, a global equity fund, for example, that has some emerging market allocation. One could do it by buying region-specific um, mandates uh, just to get the emerging market bit that you want, or one could buy a general global emerging market equity fund. Um, how do you view the, the, I suppose, positives and negatives of each of those uh, approaches? I mean, I think the take a step back in a way. The, the way to to think about it is what is you're looking for when you're trying to get emerging market exposure. Um, and in a sense, you know, however you approach it as a multi-asset manager, are you are you you're uh, doing some sort of efficient frontier work, or whether you're looking at some sort of uh, potential return targets and liability matchings, or you know, how, how you're unstructuring it? What sort of percentage exposure do you do you actually want? To the core, which is the you know volatile dollar dollar earnings coming out of emerging markets um, over history, 
And once you've kind of got that, you can then decide how to do it. Because all the various suggestions um, you, you made, you could you could say, well, um, yes, I could do any one of those things, but um, what exposure am I actually getting? So, you know, if I'm if I'm just getting emerging markets via a, a global fund, I'm obviously going to get much less potentially. If I just put five percent into that global fund, I'll get a, a small portion of that in, in emerging markets. But if I actually wanted 5% exposure to emerging markets, then I presumably should just go and buy 5% exposure to emerging markets. Um, so uh, I, I don't think those two are fundamentally different. It's just a question of scaling. Um, the issue of how do you, uh, whether you should use single country funds um, or not, in, in general, uh, we would say no. Um, it, it makes it more difficult to. To, to manage the, the risk across the portfolio when you concentrate. And to be honest, a lot of emerging markets do not have the breadth and depth of, of stocks uh, to justify uh, a bunch of single um, uh, single country uh, portfolios. Um, one could argue that, that China increasingly does. Um, and you know, should that be uh, a separate uh, question, a separate uh, asset class? Um, by itself, I mean, I, maybe that's the way things do do move. Um, there are a lot of connections between China and some of its its neighbours, um, and compositions of the emerging markets at the universe have certainly changed you know, massively. Um, so maybe that argument's come more into fore. But then, of course, um, the fact that it may change massively in the future is is also not to be ignored. Uh, and again, you still have the issue of how do you balance the things you're taking in China versus uh, all the other opportunities that there are around other uh, in other emerging markets, some of which are connected with those things in in, in China anyway. So um, I think we would always suggest that a global portfolio is probably the, the global emerging markets portfolio, sorry to be precise, is, is probably the best way to go. Um, but if you are going to decide to, to split it up, you just have to to do so with a clear idea about what exactly it is that you want exposure to and why. You know, if you wanted an individual Indian portfolio, for example, why do you want India as opposed to everything else? Are you sure you don't want everything else, um, given that you're taking a more specific and therefore heightened risk? Thank you. Mike, as an investment manager, you can look across all of those options, I, I presume, and, and how, do you, how do you interact with, with each of those choices? How do you view that, that question? Yeah, it's an interesting question, um, not least because actually when you're buying even European equities, when you dig into the earnings, what you realize is that there's a quite a significant indirect exposure of getting to the Chinese economy through those companies and what they sell. So because China is such a large economy and because it has such a large amount of capital that that, it, that is... Uh, being invested outside China, uh, China already has a big impact. And, and whether, you, whether you are aware of it or not, you already have a pretty significant exposure to China through even developed market equities. So I think that the issue is um, why you would choose to exclude emerging market equities, given that they make up a large part of the world economy and the development of the capital markets means you, you now have a much wider range of companies um, and in many countries 
better quality of economic management that you had before. So why would you choose to exclude that? And they are probably underrepresented in index portfolios. Um, so so uh, you are getting a pretty small exposure if you just stick to a glo uh, an all-country global equity index. Um, for individuals, it's pretty tough to get enough information analysis to go down a single country route. So you know, I'd agree with the notion that you put your logical starting point would be to have a diversified exposure um, with people who, who can do the job of stock picking for you and, and ascertaining the opportunities. Um, but I think, I think it's more a case of how much is the right exposure rather than whether you um, should rely upon getting exposure through developed markets that happen to have companies that sell into China. You know, it's too big a part of the world to ignore. And with the markets being what they are, you should have a, a, a direct exposure to them. And the question is just how much. Now, and that really comes down to an asset allocation decision, um, which is probably uh, beyond, the, beyond the scope of, uh, of the discussion today. And it's a pretty big topic. But, but yeah, definitely, you want to be having a direct equity exposure. Um, and probably global would be a sensible starting point. Mike, thank you for that. And just to, to take some of those points on, really, um, it used to be said that when America got sick, the world caught a cold. But are we now in a position with emerging markets where actually, for emerging markets, generally speaking, it's the economic performance and outlook for China that really impacts what happens everybody else in, in, um, in emerging markets to a much greater extent than what happens in the US? Well, I think the US is still, you know, um, probably the single most important uh, country in terms of its impact on other markets because of the role the dollar plays and uh, and, and therefore the role uh, and the impact that the Federal Reserve has. Um, and we've seen that with the ability of this administration to impose sanctions and how that's impacted countries, <laughs> sectors pretty dramatically. China has been under the radar for investors for a while in the sense that it looks like you don't have much direct exposure to it in your portfolio because we don't have much in the way of uh, China-issued bonds or China-issued equities in people's portfolios. But the economic impact and the impact of Chinese capital flows has been massive for years. And so probably only in the last maybe five years has it become quite so apparent um, how slowdowns in China uh, impact uh, economies elsewhere. So I think there is a, there is a clear realization, but that's very important. And, and China does matter to a much greater extent than it did before. Uh, but for us, the US is, is still probably the single most important country in terms of the impact it has on other markets and other countries. Thank you. Um, Nicholas, what, what's, what's your view on that? Um, are, you, uh, are you every day frantically trying to find out what's what's happening in China before you look at happening on, on Capitol Hill and what Trump might have tweeted? Or is it the other way around? <laughs> um, no, it's still, well, I wouldn't say every day looking at what Trump's tweeted. Um, uh, I'm sure that's the way to a, a happy, calm life. But um, uh, we, uh, with, no, it's still the dollar because although in economic terms, obviously the two countries are much closer together in terms of share of global GDP, um, the it's the dollar is still the reserve currency. The dollar financial system is still very dominant. Um, so when the dollar is strong, it's an effective monetary tightening across the whole world. Um, and what, you know, you see the weaker emerging currencies then come under to, to pressure. 
um, you know, have a, a, ba- a bunch of dollar strength, uh, uh, and you, you you run into the paper tantrum in 2013, or you run into the currency problems 2018, um, and of course in past times um, when emerging markets themselves had had, uh, had uh, more fragile economies, you you ran into uh, the Asian crisis in the 90s and and, and so on. So uh, the dollar is still uh, quite dominant um, in terms of the pressure that can be put on emerging markets. And so even even China can find in a strong dollar environment that uh, it's more, it has less policy freedom. It, it has to, to do more. Um, it's pretty stable, but um, it has to do more in terms of its monetary policy to offset the effects of, of the dollar. Uh, so dollar still dominates. China in long-term earnings outlook, you know, maybe that is growing in importance. Uh, and clearly, in terms of uh, actual, you know, certainly in uh, you know, wider regional uh, politics, from everywhere from um, Korea to uh, to Pakistan, uh, you know what China's doing and how it's dispersing its money and where it plans to do um, uh, is is significant in thinking about the stocks that you're you're looking at. Um, but the dollar and the Fed still, for now, uh, kind of rule the roost. Um, and I guess we'll 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 see how that changes when uh, uh, we start seeing things like uh, globally traded commodities uh, futures being denominated in uh, in Chinese currency. Um, we'll know there's some, some that that is finally beginning to shift, but uh, but not just yet. Thank you, um, Mike. It's uh, far, far cleverer people than me have have coined the term uh, the middle income trap uh, for an affliction that hits uh, some emerging market economies. Don't worry, I'm not going to try and explain that because I don't claim to understand it. But one of the sort of investment outcomes of the middle income trap was this view really that um, the way to profit from emerging market growth was probably to, um, to, uh, to, to invest in the emerging market consumer in, in rising income levels, meaning people buying more goods, including more Western goods. However, more recently, um, we've started to see uh, technological uh, change become a, a profound factor in emerging market societies, and we've seen some very large companies, uh, technology companies, emerge from emer- emerging market countries. I'm thinking of Tencent or Alibaba from China, for example. Are we at the point yet where emerging market investing is is more about technology and less about selling the more expensive chocolates and shampoo? Yeah, look, yeah, look. It's it's fun to have those stories around what it is that makes emerging markets interesting and and potentially attractive as an investor. And certainly, there's been an increase in the IT part of those stock markets, so that you know it's become a much bigger part of the the picture than it was before. Clearly, um, interestingly enough, if you just look at a simple EM global index, you see that actually financial and consumer discretionary are still larger parts of the market than tech, um, although there isn't a lot now between between the three of them. Um, and as I mentioned before, energy and materials have, have fallen back. Um, so it's, it's really a bit more rounded than just focusing on a couple of thematics like that. Uh, you know, what's happened is that these companies uh, have progressed in terms of 
servicing their own economies, um, becoming dominant in doing that, and in some cases also emerging as very competitive on the global stage over a prolonged period of time. And we've seen that with some of the uh, South Korean companies and Taiwanese companies, and you've sort of seen the end of that copycat China uh, label uh, probably probably ended about 10, 12 years ago. So I think it's a bit runs a bit deeper than that, and that's why there's plenty of interesting companies uh, who you would look at in the same way you would look at companies anywhere, really, rather than a particular thematic uh, along those lines. You'd be missing a lot if you restricted yourself just to looking at it that way. Thank you. Nicholas, as an emerging market strategist, has uh, has the rise of, of tech and tech adoption started to filter through to how you view the world? I mean, yes, and but I would put it more broadly than that. It's not particularly tech. It's, it's that the the available the stocks, the businesses that are looking at have uh, you know have changed over time. There are a lot of thematics going on at any one moment. We don't particularly invest on thematics. You know, you look at the stocks, you look at what their opportunities and earnings uh, opportunities are, and, and buy accordingly. But those earning opportunities are, are driven by some of these thematics. But just to expand it, it's not just you know um, more internet stocks. Um, yeah, as well as tech hardware, uh, you know, you've got um, some of those financials, which you mentioned, they're still quite big, but increasingly they're adopting um, you know, more modern fintech type uh, approaches uh, to improve their um, their returns. Uh, you've got, um, you know, you want to play a green theme. You've got, you know, battery makers in Korea. You've got uh, obviously lots of manufacturers of, uh, of um wind and solar and so on uh, in China and, and a few elsewhere as well. Um, so there, there are quite a, a lot of themes that are, that are going on at any at any one time. I think very broadly, you could say that um, overall as part of the index, there's probably still more producers rather than consumers in terms of companies. Well, it's obviously a bit difficult to define all of that precisely in, in emerging than there would be in, in, in the US market, for example. Um, but uh, you know that it, even even that has shifted shifted quite a bit. Um, and just as another example, given a few earlier of, of sectoral uh, changes, but um, you know if you go back to uh, say 15 years, then commodities in terms of um, materials sector plus the energy sector added up to about 30 percent or so of the, of the emerging index, and, and now I think it's about uh, 12 or 13, something like that. Um, and you have uh, uh, Consumer-facing uh, sectors um, and internet-type names, uh, you know, driving driving up in, in terms of size. So you always have to keep an eye on on these and, and what these themes are. But it's always with an aim to, you know, what are the actual earnings opportunities for the for the companies. And you certainly don't want to get fixated on a on a particular theme. Thank you, Nicholas. That's that's wonderful. Um, okay, uh, just one one more before we have to wrap up, guys. Um, and we'll, we'll start with with Mike. I think it's probably it's probably um, something Mike's thought about a lot. Is um, to what extent can um, emerging market funds and investments form part of an uh, equity income portfolio if their growth and they're emerging? Are there enough dividends out there? We think actually that it's probably been overlooked. Um, if you look today at the kind of average level of payout ratios in across the board in EM relative to DM, it 
is quite a bit lower and you're getting access to a wider range of companies and industries compared to say the UK where you've had much higher payout ratios but arguably companies have been over distributing that's inflated the yields and most of that income has come from a pretty small number of companies and it's been a heavy reliance on banking and energy which are both very cyclical sectors so this year has been a wake-up call for income investors to realize just how reliant they are on a small number of companies if most of their income is coming from uk dividends so we look around the world and we can see em is certainly one of those areas where the development of the capital markets there and the payout ratios and the, the balance sheets mean they probably are a much better place than they were previously to provide a source of income, reduce that, that, that reliance. So yes, in our own income portfolios, we do have exposure. Thank you. Nicholas, um, are you seeing many more companies come, come on board with, uh, with regular and predictable uh, dividend streams in, in, in your universe? Um, or is that still very much a story for tomorrow? No, it's, it's happening slowly, I think. Um, there, there have been uh, reforms and changes in a few countries like Korea, which have, uh, have not traditionally, companies not paid a lot and, and are, are paying more, and that trend will continue. Um, the overall payout ratio across the uh, overall sort of dividend rate, sorry, across the whole of emerging markets is uh, not quite what it is in developed, but it is a bit barbell-like in the sense that there are quite a large number of people who pay pretty decently um, across a range of companies, and then there are one or two countries um, who uh, who pay very li very little. But even if you take those countries out, you've still got a decent pool of of, of companies which. Uh, uh, you can get a nice dividend yield on. So I think it, it has been overlooked as a, as a, um, a potential. And I think, uh, you know, any dividend investor who wants to take a global and diversified approach and wants to get that income uh, would do well to look at emerging market opportunities. Thank you, uh, Nicholas and Mike. Thank you very much for your time today and for joining us on the FT Advisor podcast. And thank you all for listening. Please tune in next time for another edition of the podcast. Thank you. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.